Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have James Green. He's a general partner at CRV. James, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you doing? Very well. Yourself? I am doing great. It's a lovely day here in the Bay Area. So That's awesome. About. Very cool, man. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. You've done a ton of really interesting stuff, but maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Great. Yeah, uh, I grew up uh, a little bit south of actually where Peaky Blinders is set. Oh, cool. Um, Very yeah, cool. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, that's somewhat how I describe it to people, which has been really helpful because otherwise everyone thinks England is just London. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, if you were to ever meet my family, they sound, and maybe that's something I wasn't doing, they sound exactly like Peaky Blinders does. And, uh, my fiance needs somewhat of a translator with them, but yeah, it's uh, near Birmingham, middle of England, uh, and moved out to the States uh, about 10 years ago now, which is why oh. my accent's all sorts of funny. <laughs> Very cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? Uh, I did go to university. I, I did uh, evolutionary psychology and cognitive neuroscience. Okay. Um, what got you passionate about that? Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of a sad story, but my um, my grandma when I was growing up got CJD, which is um, which is mad cow disease, oh, um, and so you know you learn a lot about people and the brains and things along those sides. So, you know, I was very heavy in neurobiology, uh, and then ultimately went into some like human behavior, and then uh, yeah, <laughs> long to long story short, found my way into tech. Um, but uh so I, I studied that which was a fascinating experience but um you know, i can't say i do a lot of neurobiology these days <laughs> what do you mean dealing with tech entrepreneurs isn't <laughs> you know uh, I, I can't tell you how many models of brain behavior i've built over the years and I'm really not doing that now. <laughs> fair enough so I, i'm curious you were you got into rowing really early on and i think Obviously, there, it's different, but I think there's a lot of takeaways from that and relying on people that you either can, can I maybe give advice to teams or you working with other people and, and just being in sync with each other? Because I've never actually done it, but from what I understand, you have to be basically doing the exact same thing at the exact time or it's just a complete disaster. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Uh, if you're not in time, you usually will end up in the water somehow. Okay. Um, but you know, the there's a couple of things that are pretty interesting about it in that it's both a really big team sport in that you're only as fast as your slower person in that you're with eight guys or nine because someone's steering and you, know, you are only as fast as the team. Um, but it's also 
kind of a really stupid sport in a all okay. the best ways. <laughs> okay. And this is someone who did it for the best part of 10 years. So um, it is, I'm sure you, most of your listeners and you have at some point been on a rowing machine. It's very hard and you go very slowly backwards. Right. And so, <laughs> okay. Uh, it, uh, and so what it is, is it is an instrument of just work, candidly. You know, there are the act of actually rowing, i.e., not falling in the water, putting your oar in the water, and pulling very hard is not actually that difficult. Yes, you do need to be in time. Yes, teamwork really matters. And you know, that is a fundamental exercise that you have to intuitively trust that people are going to work with you together. But it's also just a function of work ethic. You know, there's, there's a, whatever the R rating is, but you know, the, there's a huge correlation between work ethic and going fast. And right. I kind of associate that with a lot of what I do today and some of the founders I work with. Like, you know, if you think of the bell curve of distribution of intelligence, 90% of the world sits in the middle of the bell curve. Like, People are very intelligent, very eloquent. They can communicate. And there are some people who are crazy, crazy smart, who are you know, I would never be able to keep up with. And there are some people who score below the average on the standardized testing. Right. But what differentiates between uh, a lot of people and going back to the rowing is like the work ethic and the teamwork. Like, can you communicate well? Can you trust people to do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it? And at the end of the day, can you work harder than the other people uh, you know in today's technology market you can basically start a company easier faster than basically ever before you know you get set up on stripe atlas you then you go on aws then you, know, you get a bunch of open source stuff you do your expenses on various stacks and off you go um and so a lot of it is you know, how, you know, how do you differentiate from work ethic? How do you differentiate from the team? And so you know, there's a lot from rowing that I still take today, but you know, the act of actually putting an oar in the water is not one of them. Interesting. No, fair enough. Okay. So walk us through your career, maybe some highlights along the way up until coming to CRV and then we'll dive into that. Yeah, I, uh, my first stint in technology uh, was at a consumer internet company called CarWow in okay. 2015, I want to say. It might have even been earlier. That might have been 2013. Sure. Um, and I had no skills. Like, actually, okay. no skills. <laughs> um, okay, I, why do you say that? Because well, I was young and I was modeling brain... <laughs> behavior and okay. so it's not exactly like i knew how to create a marketing funnel or customer acquisition funnel or did i know how to you know, score leads or even you know, i could code but not to the level of you know, doing it as a day job and i was young i had very little experience and okay. so <laughs> what i did was uh i went on the internet and i googled and this was back when i was thinking about living in the uk and I, for various reasons, but I went, I Googled top hundred startups in England, okay. uh, and emailed the CEO of every single one of them. Uh, I went down the list and I, uh, think I probably sent the same thing to everybody because I was 
young, dumb, stupid. Um, and I said, look, this is who I am. I'll basically work for anything and just come and let me work for you. Uh, so I ended up working at this company called Kawa, which at the time was based out of a, a seed funds VC office back when everyone was actually in offices um, and was doing all sorts of stuff uh, from thinking about lead scoring, talking to customers, all these sort of things. So that was my first foray into technology. And, and that um, came from one of those emails? Sorry to cut you off. Cold emails. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So I probably spoke, probably sent, I, I actually, I, I know, I emailed all of them. So, and I, at some point I could probably find the, the Google sheet with all the, the you know, email <laughs> name where I was in the funnel kind of process. Emailed all of them. I, you know, I probably got a quarter of responses and half of them right. were like, who is this kid? Please leave me alone. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and some responded and you know, I worked for pennies. Like I, uh, one of my best friends at the time was living in London and uh, I slept on his sofa. Um, and, and so that was my first foray into tech. And just because James Hines, who's the CEO of Carwell said, sure, that sounds great. Come work with us. <laughs> so <laughs> That's amazing though. Okay. So keep yeah. going on your journey. Yeah, so I did that, um, and then at the end of my stint there, I was said, you know, I still don't really know anything, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> maybe I should speak to ten thousand software companies and just figure out what's good, what's bad, you know, just speak to as many as humanly possible. And there had to be a better way than emailing them my personal email saying, "Please speak to me." Um, okay. And so uh, I figured investing would be a good way to do it. Um, so uh, I uh, did basically the same thing and emailed a bunch of VCs and a bunch of different investment firms and said, look, I don't really know what I'm doing, but uh, would love to learn. Um, and uh, you know, I also, at the time, uh, had negative dollars to my name with student debt and you know, come from the middle of nowhere, England, where didn't have a lot of money uh, and wanted just you know to make some money for me and my family. And so um, went into went into investing for lots of reasons. Um, it's one of the best things I've ever done. Uh, but went in and uh, got my first ever job, uh, a firm called Insight, where I spent the better part of five years. Uh, and uh, that's where I started my career. Interesting. Okay. So what made you come to CRV? And then let's dive into that. Yeah. Um, so it's been a long time in Insight and had heard of CRV. You know, it's right. a storied firm. It's been around 52 years, multiple firms, multiple category changing companies and foundational businesses at a global scale. Right. Um, and also had gone through multiple transitions uh it's one of the very few firms that is uh equal you know you think about equal partners equal decision making and you know, usv benchmark and arson you know there were a couple of others but those are the, kind of the big ones and so that was fascinating and i'd known the team for a, a little while and um i really wanted a, a change uh to go earlier, to go closer to the genesis of companies, 
to spend time in a you know, different culture. And so uh, that really catalyzed it. And, but I was, you know, I was very happy with what I was doing at Insight, but it, the, the pitch and the pull from the partners here was so compelling um, that I joined just over a year ago, I guess now. Um, and it's been a pretty amazing ride, uh, even with the seesawing and ups and downs of the public markets, private markets, you know, the rise and fall and rise again of crypto. It's, you know, it's been a very interesting time to be, be in the world of venture. Okay. Interesting. So let's dive into what types of stuff do you invest in at CRV? And then let, maybe let's dive into some of the companies. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I think maybe there's three layers to that. There's what we do as a firm, there's what I do personally, and then kind of some of the stuff I've done. Um, okay. I think uh, as a firm, you know, one of our favorite questions is, you know, can this be a foundational company? And, you know, that is a qualitative and quantitative question. And quantitative is somewhat simple. It's like, can I have enough revenue to support a public company? Um, and qualitative is like, what does the world need to look like for this to be a public company? You know, going back to the early days of DoorDash, like, what, what had to happen for that to be a public company to do billions in revenue? Um, right. And I don't think anyone would have said a global pandemic because that wasn't sure. quite on everyone's radar back then. <laughs> sure. But uh, you know, obviously that was a huge catalyst for all the online food delivery companies and uh, many others. Um, but we really invest at the earliest stages. You know, we'll invest pre-launch, you know, even some cases pre-idea for founders we've known for a long time, you know, all the way to kind of series Bs, which are hyper-growth companies still trying to figure some of their things out. But what we think is on a massive value creation path to be you know, a 10, 20, 30 billion dollar plus company. Um, and we pretty much do every category, uh, at least in software and internet. Um, the advantages and I guess disadvantages in some cases of being around 52 years is what it means is you just basically started investing in semiconductors. You were in semiconductors, right. then you were kind of in box software, then eventually this thing called the cloud happened. And now we have uh, crypto and then we have the whole world and the proliferation of technology. And ultimately the difference is just the technology stack. You know, we're still looking for businesses that have huge accretion of value, very foundational, had massive value to whoever the end customer is, business or consumer alike. Um, and that's kind of where we, where we come in. Um, I spend personally most of my time on kind of financial technology and then you know, infrastructure and developer tools. Um, okay. And I do that uh, because of basically two reasons. Um, on the financial technology side, uh, if you go and look around the world and look at legacy financial institutions uh, and you don't really need to be a finance major or investment banker to see this, like they're very profitable businesses and typically businesses that are giant and very profitable are not good businesses for the consumers or for the businesses they serve because they have huge product profit margins and they're massive businesses so have lots of different product lines and ultimately get fat, lazy, and slow. And so if you look at the world uh, and for your US listeners, the 
JP Morgan's, the Wells Fargo's, all these people are classic examples. But in LATAM, you have businesses that similarly in Brazil, in Mexico, and the same as Europe, and you, you pick a country. And so the VCs 10 years ago used to look at Oracle's product lines and say, okay, how do we replace Oracle's product lines? Because it's the same thing. Um, we really are no difference now, but just I'm picking a, a bigger, slower moving, more profitable company. Uh, and so we're spending a lot of time in financial technology broadly. We've made a number of investments. Probably uh, maybe the most public facing in the US, the business called Mercury that my partner Saar led. Um, and then in LATAM, where we're spending a lot of time uh, for all the reasons we just mentioned, um, uh, we led the Series B of Jeeves, which recently uh, announced a Series C. Uh, and you know, that uh, is just kind of the same thesis. You know, the legacy financial institutions are insufficiently serving customers and there has to be a better way uh, kind of layer on, layering on software. So yeah, that's, that's kind of us and I guess where I'm spending my time. Um, you know, the, there are so many uh, different founders I could talk about, um, but you know, the obvious one is Jeeves, as I mentioned, just given the, the recent fundraising announcement. And yeah, Deleap uh, has been a phenomenal partner to work with, you know, and that's, the use of vernacular and the use of language is something we think about a lot at CIV. Uh, you know, how can you be deliberate with your words? And you know, we don't invest in people; we work with people. You know, we're trying to build foundational companies, and you know, that's extremely important to us. And so, the the number of companies, people that uh, Jeeves has had an impact on since we made the investments uh, is counting the thousands, um, okay, and maybe even tens of thousands. And so. That's you know, why the business is growing so quickly and it's, you know, it's one of the fastest growing businesses we've seen um, and why it's having such a big impact and you know, why it garnered more investor attention for the Series C. But uh, it's been an amazing story to be part of and uh, it's one that I think, yeah, I've been guilty of it, but I'm going to do it anyway because I, even though I, I dislike it, you know, it really does feel like very, very early days for this business. Okay. Um, and you know, it's already in tens of countries with multiple products, hundreds of employees, uh, real fast growing scaling revenue. And so there's, uh, there's a lot to go do, but I, I really think this could be one of those foundational companies. Nope. Very cool. So for people that have never heard of them, what do they do just for some context? Yeah. Um, and that is totally on me. Um, nope, the, okay. uh, you know, if you think about um, as a business, if you ever, you know, if you work at a business, you have a expense card. And so you, you go, you buy a cup of coffee, you buy lunch with a client, whatever you do. So this business provides the credit uh, and the credit card to go do that, but does it in a cross-border fashion, uh, i.e. Uh, we at CIV have employees in 10 countries, we have 10 different currencies, 10 different expense systems, uh, and it provides that all in one single system. And so as the world went remote in the last couple of years and continues to be distributed today, this problem you know, is kind of accelerating in an exponential fashion. Um, and the classic example is 
companies in Mexico City, where the company is founded, um, have to do a personal liability line to get a credit card for a business. You can raise tens, twenties, millions of venture funding, and a traditional bank won't give you a credit card for your business. Wow, fascinating! Completely <laughs> crazy, like completely. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Well, they give uh, them free to people that don't have jobs in North America or other parts of North America. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah. um, and not only do they, they do, it's so difficult to get one. Yeah. I would encourage your listeners to Google the average interest rates of Latin American credit cards. You know, wow. is that it is, uh, for lack of a better term, predatory. Okay. And so this... Uh, this company is solving so many issues. The, the better technology on the back end, so easier to run your company, ease, ease and access to capital, uh, allows you to hire people in different countries a lot easier. It's, it really is on lots of different kind of big macro waves and the, the team is executing phenomenally against it. No, that's, that's very cool. Do you want to maybe cover one or two more other investments that you've uh, done recently? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, we also made an investment in a, a business called Release, um, okay. which uh, is more on the developer tool side at the other side of the house where I spend my time. Um, this is uh, founded by a team who used to be the senior executives at a business called TrueCar, which, oh, yeah, sure. um, which ironically going very full circle is what the business CarWow was based on, which was my first ever job. Um, oh, interesting. And so uh, going full circle, um, the and what it does is uh, it really empowers developers. Okay. So uh, we think about empowering people, empowering companies, and you know, this is focused on developers and allows them to spin up development environments very, very easily in almost any scenario at any time instantly, which wow. before would have taken hours of work, lots of dependencies, lots of people. And I can basically allow anyone to spin up a development environment. Yeah. Someone like me, who I would describe as past technical in that I haven't actively <laughs> coded in a decade, um, it can spin up an environment today. Does uh, it matter on language? Sorry to cut you off. Uh, it can be, it's very, it's many different languages uh, okay. and lots of different types of clouds as well. Uh, so it's really very extensive. Um, right. And uh, it allows you to kind of spin those up and, in lots of different ways. And so uh, that, this is a classic example of empowering people, an amazing team uh, who are really trying to build a, you know, a business that uh, makes a huge difference in, in businesses' lives. So um, that, was a business, that was a business we invested in last year where we led the Series A. Um, and uh, it, there's another one where you continue to out-execute everything they said they would and yeah, <laughs> work harder than basically anyone I know. Um, they, uh, you, your listeners want to go on the website. They uh, are very family oriented people and, and they're, they're a remote culture and yeah, now can actually spend time with all their kids, which they have on their pictures on that website. So it's a, it's a lovely little thing that they've got going. Very cool. And, and one more. Uh, sure. Uh, we invested in a, a business called Recapped. Um, okay. which what this business does is allows uh, salespeople to collaborate actively with um, their customers. So if you're selling a piece of software today, uh, maybe you're selling 
maybe you're selling release um, and you're selling it to the development team, except they need to get signed off from the CFO, they need to get signed off from legal, maybe they have compliance, or maybe they have a couple of other different stakeholders. In the past, that would be done through email. Hey, James, in compliance, I need you to sign off on this. And it's just an email that gets lost into the ether. Yeah. This is a you know, revenue collaboration platform that uh, allows people to collaborate in lots of different fashions um, and really close deals faster. So basically it, what it allows is hand, perfect handoff between the sales teams who are selling the software to whoever is, then to the customer success team and all the other respective stakeholders in, in a sales process. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, to go, go the gambit of having led B's, A's, and now seeds. We led the seed um, relatively early when I got to CRV, so it's probably almost a year ago. Um, hey, they, they have customers like Pendo and Comply Advantage and you know, a number of other large enterprises using the platform to kind of empower and service their, in this case, sales teams. Um, and uh, in that, in this case, this business is based in New York, and you know, we're we're pretty agnostic with where founders are based. You know, I would say uh, still the majority of our investments are in the broader Bay Area, um, but you know, we're focusing. I'm personally focusing a lot on LATAM, uh, and we've made investments remotely, New York, you know, Oslo. You pick pick a pick a place. We we probably made made an investment. Very cool. So. This is, I know this is probably like a really general question related to kind of who you're dealing with and company and how their history is a little bit, but you mentioned earlier that you guys will invest, obviously, if you've known the founder for a while and they're working maybe on a new idea or when nothing's been built or obviously at later stages when something's built, but where or what advice would you give entrepreneurs because I know, like, forget bootstrapping, but they know they need to raise money for whatever reason. Do you think it's better to have kind of an MVP or a prototype or or nothing or have some revenue? Or what do you, what advice do you give to people that when they should potentially raise money? Because as a founder and somebody that's done it before, it's very, very challenging to know when to actually do that. And I'm always curious to get investors' advice and thoughts on that. Yeah, this is a great question. So I've invested in businesses that have bootstrapped to tens of millions of revenue. And you know, I've invested in businesses that, like I said, are at PowerPoint stage. You know, I would say the the point of which uh, people should raise money is when they think it can be really big. It's not, and it's not a, uh, it's not a bad thing to start a company that is not going to be listed on the NASDAQ. And it's not a bad thing if you think it can be listed on the NASDAQ and you eventually don't get there, like that happens. Um, But if you fundamentally believe that you want to try and you think it can be a foundational company, that's when people should try and raise money. Um, You know, I see people at the seed stage raising large seed rounds on kind of an intuition that they want to be a big company, but they're really just raising money and don't quite have the long-term legs or vision or thoughts about what they're trying to do and end up working for multiple years. The business sells and they don't make really any money or kind of have a life-changing exit. Whereas if you 
bootstrapped a you know business that you ultimately decide okay we're not going to be a foundational company you sell for five million dollars that's a that's a life-changing amount of money for you and your co-founders and the employees right um and so the uh the question i always ask people is like why are you doing this like what's what's the motivation what do you want to be you know what do you think this can be uh and if the answer is I, I really think this is going to be a public company. Um, and you, you have to say it with conviction and believe it. Uh, but if you really do believe that it can be a public company for X, Y, and Z reason, like that's when you should raise money because that's why you can get off the ground. That's when you get the help. That's when you get everything that comes with venture capital. But you should believe that, at least in yourself. No, I, I actually think that's really good advice and an interesting way of putting it because you're right like if you bootstrap a company you sell for five million dollars like yeah that's awesome but if you raise ten million dollars and sell for five like it sucks right <laughs> yeah you're out yeah. of luck yeah it, um, and it's terrible and i yeah. see it a lot you know there's there's it just kind of depends on when this gets aired but there's a lot of recent stuff in the news of raising a lot of money and you know, it not not working out and it's really tough and it's mostly tough for the employees because they may be found that taken secondary or whatever it is, but it's really sad for it, for all the people involved when that happens. And you know, venture capital is not right for everybody. It's right for some people. And I really, we think about this every day is like, can this be a foundational company? How can we help you? What do we do? How can we be involved? Where we can we push? Where can we get out of the way? But, you know, if you start your own company and don't raise money and sell it for five, $10 million, like you're really set. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you know, I just, I always, always ask people like, is this the right thing for you and your company? So. Okay. No, I, I think that makes total sense. So, but okay. So if I, if hypothetically, if I'm pitching you and you ask me that question, how do you, or what do you look for in my answer that can convince you that yes, I actually want to take my company public and that I actually am in it for the long haul? Because I find sometimes so many people think that they're going to start a company, they're going to sell for tens of millions, if not more, and they're going to be rich in you know a couple of years. And you and I both know that's never the case, but how do you kind of weed that out? Or is there any advice you give to people to actually prove that they've either done this before or are willing to grind it out for you know three five ten plus years sometimes yeah the the fundamental understanding of what taking venture capital means is the start of it right like okay. it's okay this is a journey this is what a cap table is this is what a preference stack is like do you understand what this means for you and your employees and if they have that understanding that's a good first step okay and then secondly, because there's a lot of education out there in the world today, and so we should have access to that level of knowledge. The second is, yeah, what do you think the world will look like if this is a public company? Like when, and I don't expect people to, going back to the finance thing, I don't expect people to go deep on what does the revenue model look like and how what's the flow of proceeds and all those things. It's not that important. It's like, but what it is important is, okay, why does this need to exist? And why will it be really big? And what does the world look like? This is a public company. And you can 
you can envision it, you get excited by it, you have conviction in what you're saying. And that is what drives me to believe that, yes, okay, you think this can be a public company. And so it's the intellectual uh, rigor of knowing, okay, this is what I'm signing up for. This is how uh, venture capital works. Uh, and then it's also the true belief that I'm taking this money because I want to change the world. I want to create a foundational company and it will look like this. And if it looks like this, then ultimately we'll have a successful business. All right. Interesting. No, I, I, I agree. I think that makes, makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on no code because you or low code, because you invest in developer tools. Do you think that's the future bit of a hybrid model between what we have kind of now and that, or, or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting question because uh, low code and no code buzzwords been around for a long time, right? Totally. You, you kind of, if you go even into the public market, there's Pegasystems and big companies that have been quote unquote, no code, low code for decades. Um, and then you have the next generation of businesses like Airtable where we're privileged to be partners with Howie. Um, and continues to ride the wave and you know, accelerate uh, kind of every year. And so you know, to answer your question directly, there is going to be a universe with both of them. And that's not a, a hedge. And it's actually what I believe is an uh, increasing of the total addressable market. If you look at uh, the number of developers in the world, uh, it's growing but it's not growing as fast as the number of software companies. Right. And so, which is why supply and demand happens, which is why the average salary of developers is continue to accelerate uh, every year for the past decade. And if that continues to happen, you know, there is a ceiling of which the capital markets will allow developers to get paid and people to get paid for X, Y, and Z unit of work. And if that's true, the only outcome can be a software platform that allows non-technical people to produce some level of technical output, which has to be no code, low code. Because otherwise uh, you just continue to have this increasing of salary from developers. And actually what I actually think will happen is just both. I think the production of software will continue to accelerate way faster than the number of people. And so low code, no code will accelerate in ways which uh, I think we can't even conceive to think about, but also developers will continue to be one of the most popular jobs and popular career routes for many young people uh, in school today. No, I, I think that's actually really insightful. And I 100% agree with you. It's, it, it, I just being in tech for as a couple of decades now myself, it's funny how the trends have come and gone a few times and what they're called is just different. And like you said, no code, low code's been around for decades, but they've had different names throughout the de different decades, right? And I agree with you. I think they'll be both, right? And it's interesting to get your perspective on that. But I'm curious, because you guys have been investing globally for a very long time now, and you still are, how has the pandemic change the state of venture capital and and what are your thoughts like it's from an outside perspective it seems to me there's a ton of money floating around and investments happening kind of all over the place but is that a true statement or what are your thoughts on the state of venture capital these days uh, all of that is true 
So there's more dry powder uh, than the history of venture capital, okay. uh, which is driven by low interest rates and needing to find yield from large um, LPs. And so money is flowed in venture capital uh, and the pandemic, uh, for some reason or another, because there's always been interesting companies all over the world, right. and a lot of our peers have said, oh, there are companies outside of the Bay Area. Um, <laughs> which, you know, we, we've invested outside of the Bay Area for decades. Um, but the, uh, and so the money is going everywhere and the pandemic has allowed people to do that from the comfort of their home. You know, we, uh, and you see that in the output of the dollars. You know, we, you see uh, last year was the largest year in funding in LATAM in the history of time. Uh, and that has also been true in the US, it was also true in Europe. And so the the people who are always like, this city's better than that city, or San Francisco is the most important place in the world, or you know, whatever it is, it's very much a zero sum game. You know, the we're in a global technology world, the internet is global, pretty much wherever you are in the world, you can have access to it. And um, there are great entrepreneurs everywhere. Right. And so the pandemic has accelerated it, which is clear to happen. Having said that, uh, you're also seeing the rise of uh, traditional Silicon Valley firms open offices in different places. You, know, you have uh, people opening offices in London, people opening offices in New York. You know, there's, there's talk of Miami, there's talk of lots of different cities. And so while the pandemic accelerated the flow of capital to different regions, what it really did, I think, was make people look around. And ultimately decide, yes, you still need people on the ground. Yes, you still need human connection, but it's not a zero sum game. And while San Francisco will, will and is the center of the world of technology, the world of technology is accelerating way faster than anyone could ever think. And again, going back to our previous conversation that it's not a shock that dollars are going all over the world when the growth of the market is way accelerating the growth of dollars. Yeah. Interesting. No, I have, I, uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I've had no, this thought in the past going. about the cloud vendors. So yeah. you, you put together the AWS, GCP, and Azure's annual bookings growth. So in the billions of dollars. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. Uh, the dry powder in the U.S. Let's take the U.S. just for ease of math. Uh, doesn't really equate to the top cloud vendors booking growth. So you have AWS, GCP, Azure, and you maybe even throw Snowflake in there. They're adding billions of dollars a year. And you maybe right. we have $100 billion of dry powder if you include a lot of private equity firms. And so it's actually still de minimis. The issue is you, know, we, you still need to invest in foundational companies, and that's why prices are, are going up. But I actually believe that the growth of the software market outstrips the growth of the private market dollars. Um, and the reason people have gone elsewhere is because they want to put those dollars to work uh, in a more unified fashion that hopefully a, a lower, more rational price, although that's not really happening. So. Interesting. Okay. Uh, okay. No, I, but okay. Then why do you, why do you say that just out of, and why is that your opinion? Just out of curiosity then? Well, in case it's not abundantly obvious, I'm a long-term believer in the role of technology in the world. And I, uh, there are still billions and billions of dollars of uh, 
compute locked in on-premise. So we're very early in the cloud days. Sure. And that's accelerating. Um, it's not decelerating in any way. It does not, it's not to talk about the, the role of Web3 in the world. And so because of that, uh, there's more and more dollars chasing a bigger and bigger opportunity. And so uh, while prices have gone up, while dollars have become more di diverse and dispersed, um, I think we're still in early days. Like I really do. No, I 100% agree with you. I, I think we're just at the start of kind of the tech rush or in, that's going to hit every industry and accelerate like crazy in the industries it's already in, right? Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, uh, go to any major city in LATAM or go to any major city in Europe and then go to a business and say, what technology are you using? And a lot of people are still on old Windows operating systems, or a lot of people are still using on-premise technology. There are data centers all over the world in people's offices still. Um, I'm sure we've all been in a bar and seen someone using Oracle's Micros instead of Toast. Like we are really early. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I 100% agree. So I'm curious, what advice or what is CRV and or yourself looking for when companies want to pitch you guys to actually get some investment? You know, go, going full circle to the rowing thing. Uh, I uh, I look for voracious hunger. Like I really do. Like okay. I, a big will to win, someone who goes to sleep thinking about this, wakes up thinking about this, because startups are hard and it's not linear. We know it's not linear, but we have a portfolio approach. We, you know, we make multiple investments in a fund. The founders have, have typically one company that they're running at any one time, sometimes more than one, but mostly one. Uh, and so uh, we, we and I look for the deep hunger and will to win. Um, and then on top of that, why do you have a unique point of view? Like what is what was your unique insight and why this your approach or this company or whatever it is is going to be foundational? Um, and then you know, lastly, it's like, how does your team work together? And yes, we care about what you've done before, and but really it's how are you working together? You know, how do you communicate? How are you delineating roles? What uh, are you thinking about? milestones, who's in charge of milestones, the true accountability of that in the operations. And those are the kind of things we look for. Um, and, you know, there's a, I have to, I keep people asking me how many companies I've spoken to in my life. And it's, it's probably more than 10,000 um, and have made around 20 investments for ease of math. So it's, you know, it is a fraction of a fraction, uh, the number of times we make investments. Uh, and, and this sometimes that's my own fault, sometimes it's the fault of the market, but you call it it's a very, very small number. And, and so it's that really like that magic source. Um, and when it happens, it is like one of the best parts about this job that you, know, you fall in love with the vision, you fall in love with people's hunger, uh, and you just have to figure out a way to work with these people. Uh, and so that that's something that gets me just really, really excited and something that everyone at CIV gets excited about because we think that that hunger, that willingness to work together, that unique insight is you know, the early sparks of what could be a foundational company. I think that's really good advice. What are your thoughts on people getting to know, say, yourself or other 
investors at CRV? Should we build a relationship with you first before we pitch you? Are you fine with the cold pitches or the warm introductions? What do you would recommend? Uh, hopefully it's obvious from my background that I'm very comfortable with cold pitches. <laughs> yeah, I figured. Uh, it'd be a bit of a hypocrite if it wasn't. Um, <laughs> also, if someone wants to do a warm intro, I'm happy to do that too. Uh, you know, but uh, definitely I'm comfortable with cold, cold pitches. Um, you know, I think this is an interesting question because there was a period over the, call it the last 18, 24 months, which, um, rounds were happening very quickly. Yep. And this is not a nuanced point of view, but I'm going to say it anyway, okay. it caused some shotgun marriages and some people are happy about it. Some people are not. Um, and a, an investment is actually much harder to get out of than a wedding uh more people can get divorced in the u.s than they can uh get out of a assigned uh docs for for an investment round and so you would you know i don't know all the founders in the world but you would probably not get married on two meetings over 48 hours um fair enough and you know, while i guess it's easier to reference uh a vc than it is easier to reference uh, a potential partner um it's irrational to me when rounds get done in 48 hours. Uh, you know, you, if you believe you're going to be running a foundational company and if you believe that that's going to take time, why are you rushing into a process when it could take a very long time to build a business and you should get to know these people, you know, you should, and some people don't want to be in person. I understand the hesitancy around COVID, but you should just spend time with people. Uh, figuring out what they like, what they don't like, what motivates them, why they're doing this on both sides. Because uh, it really is a partnership. You know, there are different stages, investments, and then there are, but at the earliest stages, it really is a partnership. We partner with our founders. Um, you know, we don't invest in them. We work with them. Uh, and that really matters. And so, you know, I, uh, I mean, the Jeeves example is a, is a great example. I, I knew the team probably nine months before we made the investment. Um, and we'd spend multiple times together. I'd flown all over the world to spend time with them. And that was really super important to us and to them. Yeah. And in a universe where uh, there's a lot of capital and you, know, you need to differentiate in other ways, you should know who you're working with. Um, and I, I tell this to any company who... Uh, I'm trying to have the privilege of working with call any one of the founders I've backed on my LinkedIn, call any of them, message any of them. And you know, I'm happy to introduce you. I'm happy for you to call them, whatever it is, because uh, you should know who you're working with because it's very, very hard to get out of it. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. I, I'm curious then how did you meet them and what advice do you give to people that want to start that? relationship with you or other partners because especially if they're coming from a cold email like what are you expecting in that first kind of intro so uh, i met the jeeves team i sent them a cold email to the hello at tryjeeves.com email oh wow uh, so you did it i did it yeah fascinating I, you can see the uh if you go on people go on the crv website look at the blog post i wrote about the series b i emailed the hello at tryjeeves.com like a week after I started at CRV. Amazing. Um, and uh, 
and that was for the series A that was happening that we were, I was late to because I just started at, at CIV and then we let the B. Um, with me, email me, james at CIV.com. Most VC firms are first name at firmsname.com. Um, and so happy to receive cold emails. You know, it should be as simple as this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Here's any traction I have. Here's uh, any uh, numbers or whatever the KPIs are. What's your, what, what are you raising? Uh, and here's a deck and off you go. That's what I would recommend. And I read every email that gets sent to me. You know, uh, sometimes I'm a little slow in responding, uh, but I will read every email that people send me. And that, that I think is true of most of my peers. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice, but sadly we're out of time. So how about we close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, CRV and the companies you invested in and any other links you want to mention? Yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone can get the information uh, on our website, which is a uh, CRV.com where we have all of our lovely team members and a lot of the founders we've had privileged back. You know, you can see some of our backstory and you know, we think that we've done a nice job of telling people kind of who we are and, and why we do this. And so that's the best place to get information on us and you know, all the founders we work with. Very cool. Well, James, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.